Drilling fluids touch just about everything in the drilling process. We're here to deconstruct the drilling process and drilling fluid concepts to provide a deeper understanding of our industry. In each episode, we'll share information, talk to interesting people, and maybe share a few stories along the way. Welcome to The Flow Line, a production of AES Drilling Fluids, brought to you by Matt Offenbacher and Justin Gautier. And we're back. Welcome to another episode of The Flow Line, the chronicles of the microdisc. Matt, how does this happen every time? I'm not really sure just because it would be one thing if you predictably had an issue the same way every time. Okay, so like most common thread is Justin forgets the memory card, which (laughs) you do not want to record an entire podcast without the memory card for the record. Um, (laughs) However, we also get these like, you know, write locked or can't read no folder. It just seems like whatever, even when we think we're prepared, (laughs) there's some problem to be fixed. With the micro SD card on this recorder. So yeah, there's that. Yeah, that's just part of podcasting. I mean, in for- have we actually done an episode where I, because for- I'm in charge of the equipment here. And so mm-hmm. if there's any technical issues, definitely blame it on me and I take full accountability for it. Have we gone through an episode and then I realized I forgot to, I feel we- like there's been at least one. Yeah, there was one where we'd gotten pretty far and you were like, hey. Yeah, <laughs> by the way, the card's not recording. So yeah. yeah, that's frustrating. But anyway, here we are. We're recording. We got full battery life here too, which is good. So we're, we're in good shape. Matt, real quick, we're on a bit of a time crunch today. It's busy, busy. But looks like the Yankees and the Astros 50-50 split on the four-game series. Am I right? That's what happened. But okay. let's keep in mind, the Astros were winning through the eighth inning in every game. <laughs> And, you know, that was just tough. <laughs> so it was weird to go through like the emotional roller coaster of playoff games in the end of June and like get really angry. And I've never been a big Dusty Baker fan, but like, you know, yeah. Anyways, so all of that. <laughs> but yeah, so I think the best of it was if they would have won all those games, it'd be like, oh, we don't need to make any changes. And there are clearly some improvements and some things that need to be tweaked. So I hope we do that. And I hope we are even better in October. Right. Well, the cliche saying, you know, it's like you only learn something when you fail. And so hopefully these couple L's maybe, you know, make them recalibrate or reassess a few things, which I haven't watched a single baseball game yet this year. Shame on me. But again, Matt's here for all your Astros information. And that's why we kind of recap things because it kind of helps me stay up to speed too. So thank you. (laughs) You're welcome, audience. (laughs) Yeah. So, you know, speaking of audience, Matt, it's just absolutely, I get super pumped when a listener reaches out and asks a question. Because a lot of times those are the best episodes because it's, you know, oftentimes it's you and I trying to, you know, come up with good ideas. But ultimately there's people out there who have questions beyond what we talk about. And so a big shout out to a listener. The question is, and Matt, why don't you, because I think you actually stumbled across it. I may have missed it, but why don't you go ahead and tell us what we're speaking on today? Yeah. So I don't ever know whether to name names. So I apologize to this listener because we prefer to leave people anonymous and let, you know, if there's some, you know, anyways. I've accidentally done the opposite. So I apologize. But anyway, yes, typically we keep things anonymous. Yeah. Unless we get your permission, maybe I should have asked, but here we are recording. So, Mm -hmm. but the question was a lot about deep water specifically, you know, could you talk about circulating system? Could you talk about logistics, that kind of thing? And so for this episode, we recently kind of went through the circulating system again, but deep water has a few nuances to it. And so I thought we would kind of run through all of that and talk about a few of those nuances. Mm -hmm. And you know, just what it's like on a deep water rig. Now, you know, of course, the irony is that 
it's been a little while since I've been on a deep water rig. However, the safe thing to say is everything's a lot bigger. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Well, and this will be somewhat educational for myself. The deepest rig I've been on was a jackup. And that, for the most part, is very similar to onshore. There's a few, again, a little bigger, a few more shakers, but for the most part, it's very similar. But once you go deep water, again, from you know, listening to folks like yourself and other people who've been in deep water, there's some differences there, which we'll talk about today. But I mean, ultimately, you've got your surface equipment, you pump it down hole and what comes down hopefully comes up. And yeah, that's the basis of it. But there's a lot of things in between that may be a little different when you're drilling in those types of environments. But I think it's important to define what you mean by deep water, Matt. So why don't you go ahead and kind of outline the different sort of the definition and the different you know water depths associated with offshore drilling. Sure. And keep in mind that these are sort of, with technology, deep isn't, it used to be that like 3,000 feet of water was considered deep water. Nobody considers that deep water today. Mm. But like, you know, shallow, we'd say anything uh, down to 1,000 feet. So if you were to produce there, you'd build a platform, you know, fixed installation, a jackup could get you like, you know, to f- probably 400 feet of water depth-ish. And so like, there's not that much water to work with. You know, middle, midwater, whatever, probably, you know, going to 5,000 feet-ish where you could use a lot older of a rig to drill a well like this. But, you know, deeper where you've still got a fair amount of distance between the, you know, surface of the water and what we call the mud line or the seafloor. And then deep water, I think there's general consensus kind of starts at 5,000 feet, which is kind of interesting because 5,000 feet of water doesn't really sound like that much to most people anymore. But that's because, you know, deep kind of starts between five and 7,000 feet. But this other term was added for beyond 7,000 feet. And these aren't hard and fast rules. These are just kind of ask somebody else to tell you something slightly different. Mm-hmm. But ultra deep water, we have rigs now that are rated to 12,000 feet of water. And in fact, there have been several wells drilled with almost 12,000 feet of water. Depth. That's wild. So you know, obviously big distance between the mud line and surface. So deep water is kind of 5,000 feet and deeper for our purposes. Although the circulating system, once you get beyond a jackup is similar, but the impact is a little different and we'll unpack that. Yeah. Well, why don't we discuss the different rig types and then the associated water depths with each? So, I mean, when we talk about the shallow kind of stuff, so a jackup, which you've worked on one, mm-hmm. you know, you float it out to the location, but it's got these really tall legs and you basically, you run the legs down to the seafloor, they touch the seafloor and you cantilever up over the water. Yeah. So you jack the rig up over the water surface so you can move it around, but you can only drill as deep as there are legs <laughs> that are long enough. And so, you know, the thing is your BOPs are going to be on surface, which is a huge deal as far as how all this works. It's called, you know, dry tree Mm -hmm. usually. And I guess like those typically, like you said, they might have a little more circulating volume, but it's not that different. Typically, my experience is a jackup has way less space than a semi-submersible. You reach a certain point with a semi-submersible or a drill ship and it's like, I have more volume and room than I know what to do with. I could drill three wells with all this stuff. Okay, A jackup is like, I'm fighting for every square inch on this rig, but the circulating system may be a little bit bigger, but nothing fancy compared to a land rig is sort of how I see it. It's more of a land rig that's been built to move around and drill offshore. Yeah. And I guess really the biggest difference 
on a jackup versus land is that everything is indoors. And so you may go downstairs into the pit room and like the pits, they're not kind of like you'd say on land, you'd have their flow line and then pits off to the side. It's like kind of underneath the structure. And then, you know, same with mixing, everything's kind of below the rig floor versus, and again, I'm speaking in generalities. Everyone's like, well, no, on this one, this and that. For the most, you know, again, in generally speaking, everything's got different compartments and you go down these stairs and into different doors and these big rooms and everything's ventilated and, but you're not exposed. Like if you're on the pits, you're not outside on the pits, you're downstairs in the pit room. Yes. So that's really, to me, the biggest difference. But for the most part, it, it follows the same path. Yeah. I mean, and I think, you know, the other part of that is even just like, there's usually the pit volumes are, are a little bigger and the plumbing sucks. And by that, I mean, usually whoever designs a jackup designs the mud pits last. They use as few valves as possible. So you kind of have to be creative with how you move things around in a confined space. But it is in one of those, you know, it's in a, a pit room. And not only that, but like your mixing room is usually, it could be nearby, but it might be over off to the side. Mm. So you basically like leave one room where all the mud's circulating and you have to go to another room and that's where your Bayrite and all that stuff drops in and your pallets of chemicals. So it's definitely a different feel, especially when you're new to a rig and trying to figure out like the best staircase to go, Yeah, you know, that kind of thing. And, and you're going through bulkheads. So it's really nice to have your hard hat on because even though it makes you like an inch taller, hitting one of those things without one on, it, yeah, yeah. Ouch. Yeah, you can definitely strain your neck, but it's a lot better than hitting your forehead against a pipe. Especially when you're like in a hurry to get somewhere. <laughs> so yeah. Yeah. And, and so like you go from that, you could also be on like a shallow platform. So this may be where they've already got wells producing or that sort of thing. And they may temporarily place a rig out there. Those I think are actually the worst in as much as the amount of space available, like your circulating volumes and, you know, fluids movement because you're sort of adapting into something that used to have a drilling rig on it. They took it down and now they've like bolted one together for yeah. a couple of wells. But, you know, we're going to focus on deep water. And like with that, you know, the rigs that are capable of drilling those water depths, there's two kinds. One's called a semi-submersible, which is kind of like it sounds. It's got pontoons that are below the water line and so partially submerged. And then the rest of the rig is above the water line. And then a drill ship, which is a huge boat with a derrick on it, sometimes two derricks. And they're, you know, massive, but they're both, you know, depending on when they were built and that sort of thing, very capable of drilling these wells very efficiently. And, you know, what a couple of things that are significant when we start working our way towards the circulating system is your BOPs are on the sea floor. And so you've got to have a what's called a riser or a pipe to get fluid from above the blowout preventers to surface to pour over the shakers. And so that sort of changes the game on the big picture of your circulating system in that you have your, what would seem like a very conventional thing as if, you know, pretend you start at the mud line, block preventer set, you know, drilling dirt under, you know, below that with your casing program and all that, like that part of the circulating system is pretty standard. It's just, how do I get that fluid now from the mud line level all the way up to a rig and the pit system and everything at surface so that I can pump it back down the drill pipe. Right. And Matt, just to reiterate, when you're saying mud line, that's the line that's the of- the seafloor. The seafloor. Yeah. Okay. Got it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, that part of it is super fascinating, right? You go from beneath the rig floor and then, you know, water and then thousands and thousands of feet. And so 
naturally it's you got to find ways to get from like i said mud line sea floor up to the rig which required a bunch of different equipment which we never see on land but super interesting nonetheless and you talked about so anything else to do or let's talk a little bit more about the riser and can you get into a bit more detail on what the riser is and maybe some components that come with that so above the bop you're going to have this pipe effectively your annulus to get you from the top of the blowout preventers all the way up to surface to the you know to dump fluid off the flow line and carry it across the shakers but you know it's not rated to high pressures so you don't pump kill mud down it it's got a i mean they vary but some of them have you know 19 20 inch ID. So you're talking huge volumes. And so I did the math before this. And I think if you were drilling in, you know, 10,000 feet of water, you might have 3,500 barrels of whole mud in the riser. I mean, no pipe in there yet. So pipe would displace as well. But sure. So think about your pit system on surface and think about your relative amount of hole that you're drilling. Like it's not even close. So this is why offshore, you know, a lot more of it can be about logistics and that sort of thing is it's real hard to come up with something that can contaminate that mud volume when I'm drilling an eight and a half inch hole. So that's a huge part of it. And then I would just say like, you know, that's why you can bypass shakers and do well more strengthening and, you know, some of these other things. Mm. But the other part of it is you have this huge annulus. And so how do I convey my cuttings when it goes from fairly conventional hole cleaning to you know, this large analyst. So you actually have another pump and a boost line. So a line going from surface that pumps mud through, you know, up the riser. So now you've got fluid coming up the annulus from the hole mm-hmm. and you got fluid you're pumping into the riser to accelerate that annular velocity. Right. Which means you got to adjust your bottoms up calculation because the fluid speeds up once it gets into the riser. Ah, uh, so you're doing um, kind of two separate calculations there. Yeah, you well. got to get that huh. dialed in. So you got your regular mud pumps, you got the riser pump. So when you're doing your math, you know, it gets a little more hairy, you know, so... The riser changes everything when you think about circulating systems. No kidding. And I was curious before we even got started. So if you're, let's just say with pipe in the hole, you may be at, whatever, 28, 2,500, whatever, just pretty considerable amount of volume in the riser. Mm-hmm. Obviously it depends on hole depth, but like, let's say at TD, what are some of the circulating volumes you recall by being offshore? Like, are you talking 20,000 barrels, 10,000? No, I mean, you'd probably talk like 6,000. Okay. I mean, that was the thing is like, you'd see bottoms up like a couple of times a day. It was surreal. And you're running synthetic-based mud usually at those depths. And so it's just, now granted, higher up surface, we've talked about it vaguely, but like your intermediates, like your first and second intermediate, you may actually do what's called pump and dump. So Mm. you pump like 30,000 barrels of mud. Like you're actually pumping, it might be 14 or 16 pound mud and you'll pump seawater to mix on the fly with it, and you'll just drill, and all that stuff is just returns to the seafloor, and you're encasing and cement that, and then you get deep enough where you have like enough formation strength right. that you could put a hydrostatic column on it, and you run a you know closed loop then. Huh. Let's talk a little bit about the choke and kill lines. Yeah, so these are other volumes. So think about you show up on the rig, and you're trying to work your way through everything. You're like, okay. What's the riser size? How much riser do we have? Besides all the pipe tally, you know, pipe sizes and getting the BHA. And then also how much volume do the other lines, you know, choke, kill and boost. And so since the riser can't hold any pressure, if you need to, you know, pull back on the choke or you need to, you know, kill the well, 
you do it through choke and kill lines, and those lines are basically ones that can handle pressure. They tie into the BOPs, so they're below the riser. Mm. And so sometimes you'll be pumping, if you're looking for maximum velocity and everything, you can pump mud through choke, kill, and boost lines all at the same time together. And I used to, with displacements, we would pump these cleaning spacers. This is to completion, clear brine. And the problem was, you know, you still had to clean everything in the riser, even if it wasn't part of the well necessarily. And so we would pump these super concentrated pills and basically have material like staged in the choke, kill, and boost lines. Oh, wow. And once it came up about, once what went down the hole was coming back up, we would basically kick on all of the other lines as soon as we knew that pill got into the riser and it would get diluted with brine or seawater or whatever, but it would still have enough concentration to Hmm. do everything and give us the velocities we needed for good cleaning. That's one of the things you learn with respect to like fluid movements and that sort of thing. Yeah, You learn a lot about, I mean, anybody who's worked deep water be like, we do that all the time, but it's one of those, you learn these nuances of like tweaks you can do to make things work. So yeah, I mean, those are, those also arguably, you know, are part of your circuit. You could use circulate with them. So don't forget those and they account for your well volumes and all that stuff. And then, you know, I guess just in general, we get back up to surface and I mean, you might have six shakers, you know, you also really neat. You probably have a shaker hand. Yeah. Somebody who for 25 years has stood by the shakers and can tell you basically by like scent whether a screen is worn out. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Like they usually know more than a Derek hand on land. They're so experienced. Yeah. No, Um, that was one thing that I was very... I guess felt very fortunate working on a jackup because yeah, there's like different levels. It was almost like a level of shakers on, you know, and then another level of shakers underneath. So for one person, that's a lot of stuff. Cause you think, well, why would you need a shaker hand for two or three shakers? But no, there's six and however many else desand or desilter. And so having someone that's constantly there monitoring, it makes your job, I wouldn't say easier, but it allows you to be more in tune and avoid having catastrophes at the result, oh, wow, how long has this hole been in there? And no one knows because yeah. there's only been someone went by maybe four hours ago or whatever the case is. Yeah, having a shaker hand is a very nice convenience for a mud engineer for sure. Yeah. And I mean, you're just handling so many things at scale where even having, they cut like, like a pit hand or your Derek hand sort of in charge of a lot of the things that you would have on land, but the Derek hand has help, you know, but you'd actually have, you know, one of the other kind of things is just the large volumes, but also the vo- the ways you can move fluid around. Sometimes it's worse than others, but you still have your sand traps. You might have a couple of intermediate pits instead of just one. You'll have a suction pit, obviously. You may have a pit that is the only one that you can transfer from below deck. So when you think about things, you may have to isolate that pit to bring volume up or down mm. and, you know, just tricks like that, even trying to transfer to a boat. Right. Or which pit can I receive from a boat? Which I think is actually, I mean, that's kind of an extension of the rig, you know, in capacity. Why don't you talk a little bit about like how, and again, maybe we can wait towards the end, but I think it'd be interesting for folks that have not maybe worked offshore. And this is whether it's jack up Mm -hmm. or not, or or deep water or whatever, but like actually how you transfer mud, because you can transfer whole volume from land off Mm -hmm. and to the rig. Anyway, let's talk about that after. We'll, we'll talk about a little bit of transportation because I think that's something that's very unique that you kind of take for granted if you're offshore because on land, obviously, you have trucks. Anyway, yeah, we can talk about that. So we got obviously larger pits, 
you can transfer volume typically in a lot of different ways, which is kind of what I remember on, on a Jacob. I would suspect maybe even more, you know, being on a drill ship or something like that. You mentioned something and then just in reading notes here, you know, suction down the pipe to the annulus up the riser. Can you kind of describe the sort of what's happening there? Yeah, so that is a very confusing note. Um, <laughs> Sorry. If, effectively, you know, we're talking about the circulating system, but the circulating system on a deep water rig, the big difference is the riser. And so f- for fear of missing out, since we said we were going to talk about it, we have our suction pit. We go down the drill pipe, just like normal. We go, you know, we go down the pipe, through the bit, up the annulus, coming up the annulus where we're uh, open hole, inside casing, and then, then you get above the blowout preventers, and that's where, like we said, everything changes. So you've got the riser, the booster, you know, the boost pump, mm-hmm. and then it's going to come back up, you know, come out over the flow line and go across the shakers. You'll have your sand traps, you know, you'll go to your intermediate pits. So a lot of that stuff doesn't change as long as you can understand what, you know, the one, you know, nuance with the riser. Right. And then everything else is just kind of bigger and logistics, you know, I mean- Talking about storage and, and even, tra- you know, the pontoons. So I've talked in another episode about, like, I hated going down to the pontoons to check volumes because it's, like, super scary and creepy. But <laughs> the pontoons that are underneath the water, they have these massive, you know, thousand-barrel storage tanks. You might have three of them. Wow. And, you know, you keep different weights of mud down there. And, you you know, the thing is they don't want to do a lot of mixing or handling. So you'll send a heavy mud back for a lighter mud or a lighter mud back, you know, for a heavier mud. You won't just wait up three pounds per gallon, you know, at the rig. Yeah. And so you move a lot of things around. You might have 1,500 barrels of premix in a pit or in a tank. And all it is is it's your dilution. It's concentrated, whatever you need, you would want to continually add. And you just pump that while you're drilling at the same rate as you would want to maintain properties or whatever. So Hmm. that leaves a lot of the handling still back on land in a controlled environment, not at the rig site. You know, I think kind of jumping to the boats, the boat is interesting because normally there's two boats and they need to be nearby. One of them is normally supposed to be there for safety and, and that sort of thing at all times, but these boats go back in. And so you need to line up. If one of them has mud, you're going to want. You've got to figure out with your pit space either what you're going to give up and send to them or, you know, to receive what you need or, you know, timing all that out and making sure, you know, there's no issues there. It could be a bit of a challenge. And similarly, equipment, we'll have a separate episode on logistics. You know, Mm. one of the things I would, you know, on the smaller rigs, we have, they call them MPTs or marine portable tanks. And they just look like miniature frack tanks. A lot of them held 25, 50 barrels. Hmm. And you could have pills mixed and put in those. And so instead of having to mix anything, you just dump those in a pit Hmm. and pump those away. But, you know, instead of pumping a 25-barrel LCM pill, you're pumping a 100-barrel because everything's bigger, right? Yeah. So, you know, I think boats are a huge deal. And I don't want to say, like, I think it's one of those trying to stay in communication with the radio operator and some of the other folks who can tell you who's going to be where and handling all those logistics really, really matters. 
in I said we were going to talk a little bit about the boats and transferring, but I think we save that for a logistics day because I, I mean th- we could break yeah. this down into so many different episodes, and so I'm going to you know leave that cliffhanger for everyone out there who just is, can't wait to hear about it. But we're going to do logistics on another one. That so, sounds good. Yeah, I think the really the last wrench I would throw in is especially on some of these newer drill ships, you have two completely separate isolated circulating systems. So what's cool about that is for completions. So normally completions, you know, drilling, we do things kind of dirty. Completions, they want to have clear brine. They want everything spick and span and shiny. Mm -hmm. And the problem is always when you've been drilling for a while and then you go to complete and you've got all this buildup and crap. And it's sort of funny because like, You bring on brine and then like the valve seats don't work because dirt was actually helping seal, (laughs) you know, like you cleaned it too well. And now, you know, now it can't isolate. So having a completely separate circulating system for completions is like a huge operational efficiency and something that's possible on a number of these big drill ships. So just another thing that's sort of food for thought, but also, you know, a drill ship may it may stay out there for ages and ages and really only resupply after a few wells, wow. which a few wells on a deep water well is like once a year, you no know, kidding. every six months. Jeez. So they bring enough stuff out there to stay out there without too much help. Yeah. No, it's fascinating. Again, just hearing stories about people who worked on these things is amazing. And I'm sure everyone out there who may have worked deep water has a unique story, which we would love to hear. You know, if you've worked deep water on whether it's a semi-sub or a drill ship, it's a whole new world out there. And, and although the intent and conceptually it all is the same as to, you know, drill a hole into the ground thousands and thousands of feet down, but how we manage that and all the different equipment and the machinery and everything on surface or above water is, yeah, it's really neat. And just, I mean, you think of the, just the ingenuity and the innovation and it's one thing to drill 20,000 feet into the earth, but when you're out 10,000 feet above water, then doing that, it's hard to fathom. You know, it's really fascinating. And we've been doing it now. Like when did deep water start? Or like, when did we start going really far out? Do you know? Or like, it's a was good it- question. You know, it's probably been like, I think deep water really took off about 20 years ago or 15 years ago. It was like the Gulf of Mexico is where it's at, you know, mm-hmm. cutting edge technology new discoveries every other day. And so rigs were actually being built fit for purpose Hmm. coming out of a shipyard with a a contract for three or five years of continuous work. Yeah. You know, I think I may have mentioned in one of these episodes, but on LinkedIn, somebody put that like Elon Musk bought a couple of old Ensco semi-submersibles. And it was like, I remember when those were like state of the art, like I feel old, Yeah, but it's like they're beyond their service life. And now, you know, he's going to use them to catch his, boosters and stuff so <laughs> yeah no that is neat ensco they because oh no i was gonna say they got bought out but yeah so anyway for anyone out there please share your story if you have any more questions we'd love to hear about it if you work on a deep water rig in europe because right now i don't think there's that many out no. in the gulf now granted if you're overseas there may be but yeah if you're on one say hi from there send us some cool pictures again it's not very common a lot of folks nowadays are you know that have kind of cut their teeth on the unconventional side. So again, if you're out there offshore, deep water, you know, come say hi on LinkedIn or or wherever. But for all the listeners out there, we really appreciate the support. If you have any questions or comments, hit us up on LinkedIn, or you can hit us up at the flow line podcast at aesfluids.com. And with that said, thanks for everything. Take care, everybody. Take care. Thanks for listening. Please tune in next week for another exciting episode of the flow line. 
And remember, may your returns always be full and your trips always smooth. Views expressed in this program belong to participants and not their employees. The program is for informational purposes only and cannot take the place of seeking professional advice. Copyright AES Drilling Fluids.